you know, one of the grave injustices, which is not merely in our world today, but in the history of mankind. One of the gravest injustices that we have experienced as humans is what some people call racial injustice. Various ethnic groups of people have enslaved and abused other ethnic groups of people throughout the history of mankind. We learned from the video clip a few moments ago, it's not really racial injustice because there aren't any races except for the human race. But there are certainly different ethnic groups around the world and there has, as long as seems as long as there have been human beings, there has been injustice, abuse, and even slavery of different ethnic groups. Of course, here in America, the focus is always on the European-American whites that abused the African blacks and practiced the Atlantic slave trade, and it was horrible, wicked, despicable what was done, what one group of people did to another group of people. And yet, in reality, when we lift our eyes beyond the present and look at the history of humanity, we know it's, it's not merely whites abusing blacks because the, in the Mediterranean slave trade, the blacks abused and sold European whites into slavery for, for many, many years. And, of course, books have been written on the white slave trade in northern Africa and Europe. Despicable, horrible. It seems like, like the scourge of one people group abusing another people group has been something that has been common throughout the history of humanity. And it's, whenever it surfaces, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's wicked. It's despicable. And there's no excuse for it any place, any time in the experience of humanity. Perhaps the most repeated ethnic abuses during the last 2,000 years has been anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism has raised its ugly head around the world generation after generation after generation. As one people group abused, enslaved, murdered the Jewish people. And unfortunately, there's a growing confusion, even amongst evangelical Christians, regarding the role of the Jewish people in history, in the present, and in the future. And when there's confusion regarding the Jewish people, it seems that that leads to another round of anti-Semitism. And the unjust treatment of people because of their ethnicity. A couple of years ago, LifeWay Research published a study entitled Evangelical Attitudes Toward Israel Research Study. And according to the research two years ago, they reported that there has been a sharp decline of favorable attitudes toward Israel Amongst evangelical Christians. The people group that, because of what the Bible teaches, have been the greatest supporters of the Jewish people historically, 
all of a sudden, there's been a steep decline in favorable attitudes and views. And it seems to be generational. According to the research, they noted the difference between adults in evangelical churches, uh, older adults in evangelical churches, when compared to younger adults in evangelical churches. And the favorable views that older adults had, percentage-wise, was very, very high, but they noted a distinct, sharp decline amongst young adults. And their view of the nation of Israel and the people of the Jews. Well, there has been, uh, there have been three specific things that kind of go along with that, that I think perhaps even has contributed to that in our evangelical churches. One of them has been the, the growing um, popularity of a theology that I mentioned last week. It was birthed in Catholicism and Protestantism and it has, there's been a bit of a rebirth in Reformed theology that, uh, that believes that Gentile Christians have replaced Israel in the promises of God. And that there is no future for Israel. They're, they're no different than any other country or any other people group. And they have no status with God any different than any other group of people have a status with God. It's called replacement Theology: The Gentile Christians have replaced the Jewish people and God's not going to fulfill his promises that he made to Israel. But instead, he has replaced Israel with Gentile Christians and he's going to fulfill his promises with us. And he's going to never fulfill those promises with Israel. Alongside of that, there's been a growing favorable promotion of Palestinians over Israelis politically and viewing Israel as the problem in all Middle East conflict. And that is rampant in our American, many of our American universities today. And so anti-Semitism has grown in our American universities as a result of the um, the favorable view of Palestinians over Israel and their actions. But there's something else that that some believe goes hand in hand with the growth of Reformed theology and in the growth of Palestinian, uh, a positive view toward Palestinians. And that has been what some have noted as a decline in evangelical churches of teaching God's word. And, you know, admittedly, with the changes in, in uh, the way most evangelical churches function in Western culture today, so many times the church only has about one hour a week to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so everything's going to slip as far as the teaching and preaching ministry of churches. And one of the things that has slipped some have noted, is the, is the teaching of what God's Word says about the covenant promises that God made to the people that we know of as the Jewish people. The same LifeWay research study found that 72% of evangelical Christians stated that they wished they knew more about what the Bible teaches about Israel's future. 
72%. I wish we knew more. And yet, more does not seem to be forthcoming from the pulpits and classrooms in, in evangelical churches as a whole. And so, with the, with the uh, lack of biblical instruction, the growth of a theological position that says Israel is, is a nobody, and with the, the growth of anti-Semitism uh, in, in liberal circles, it, it all has added up to be very difficult for Jewish people, and another round of anti-Semitism. And, and that catches my ear and catches my heart with regards to being a preacher and a teacher. Do, do we know? Does, do the people who come and, and serve God together as a group here at Community Baptist Church, what do we know about what God teaches about this people who are the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, through Joseph, uh, through Jacob, rather? What do we know about the promises God made? The, the, the promises that God made to this particular people group began with what we call the Abrahamic Covenant, where God identified a people group that we call today the Jewish people or the Israeli people. The Abrahamic Covenant identified a people group. The Palestinian Covenant identified the land that God gave for a perpetual gift to the Israeli people. The land that modern-day Israel occupies a sliver of, a small, small portion of. The Palestinian Covenant promised the land... To the people that the, Pal- that the Abrahamic Covenant identified. And then the Davidic Covenant noted that that group of people living on that piece of land would have a political system that would be led by a descendant of David. And so these covenants were made to the people of, of Israel. The people, the land, and the politics. All promised by God. But then there were two more covenants. There was a covenant that God made with this group of people while they were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was a covenant that was not conditioned upon God's reliability. It was a covenant conditioned upon the obedience of the people. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. When you go back and you read and study that covenant in the book of Exodus, you find God saying, I'm going to give you a law. And if you obey, I will do such and so. It was not an unconditional covenant. It was just a promise that God made, but it was a conditional covenant. It required the obedience of God's people. And when we read the book of Exodus, we find out that they broke the covenant before God got it written in stone. They broke into a horrible party there at the foot of Mount Sinai while Moses was still up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments that God was writing in a, in, on stone tablets. And the rest of the Old Testament record how miserably that people failed to keep that covenant. It was a salvation covenant. It was what Jesus talked about when the rich young man asked him, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, try keeping the Ten Commandments. He said, I've kept all of those. 
He says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you give up everything you've got? Why did Jesus say that? Because Jesus knew that that man had not kept the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And Jesus nailed him on the one of the ten commandments that, that Jesus knew that man couldn't argue that he had kept. And the man turned and walked away, sorrowful, for he was very rich, the Bible says. The Mosaic Covenant was a covenant that required obedience. And for obedience, you got heaven. But the covenant was not made because God had the, the idea that someone might be able to keep it. But God made the covenant because man has the idea that maybe I can keep it. And God says, I'll give you, I'll make a covenant with you. I'll, I'll show you a law that reflects my holiness that you can never argue that you have kept my law in its entirety. You will become guilty before me. You will realize that you cannot earn heaven. And God made a new covenant. That new covenant was a covenant that God made that didn't require obedience. It was also a salvation covenant. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to the book of Jeremiah 31. Let me show you Jeremiah's record. I read you Ezekiel's recording of that covenant. I want to read you Jeremiah's recording of this covenant. It's a covenant that God made that's all about salvation. And it identifies what God's going to do as he establishes his kingdom on earth with the nation of Israel one day in the future. This is uh, part two of last Sunday's message. What do you mean when you pray, thy kingdom come? And we learned that Jesus Christ in the Gospels taught that his kingdom was, was available. And Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah who offered to them the kingdom. Jeremiah chapter 31, we have Jeremiah's record of this of this uh, new covenant that God makes. He called it a new covenant. And I want you to see it. I want to make four observations from this passage uh, from Jeremiah 31 that help us understand this amazing gift of salvation that God gives that's not conditioned upon our ability to obey, but it's conditioned only upon the mercy and reliability of the God who made the covenant. It's only because of that that we can sing of his mercies every day. Four observations. First observation, the there are two covenants that are related. Look with me in verse number 31. Verse number 31, this is Jeremiah. He was one of the Old Testament preachers right before the Babylonian captivity. He said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Okay, I want you to notice two covenants are mentioned here. The covenant that God made with the people of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant was, if you do this, then I, God, will do this. It was not unconditional. It was conditioned. God is off the hook if they disobey. He doesn't have, there's not a promise he has to fulfill because it's dependent on the people's ability and willingness to obey. It will leave them guilty before God. 
So there's two covenants here. The covenant, the old covenant that God made that was conditioned by their obedience. And if you obey, God says, I will accept you. You go back and you read that covenant in Exodus uh, chapter 19, chapter 24, you'll find that God said, I will be your people and I will be your God and you will be my people if you obey. I'll make you a holy nation. I'll make you a royal priesthood. If you obey, I will accept you and we will be one big happy family if you obey. It was a covenant that required the obedience of man in order to be able to have the benefits of what God was willing to do in this covenant relationship. Now, the book of Galatians and the book of Romans makes it extremely clear in the New Testament that God's intention in entering that covenant was merely to produce guilt. Romans 3 tells us that we were put under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is not to give you ten really important things for you to live your life by. The purpose of the Ten Commandments was to prove to you how guilty you are before a holy God. That was the design of the Ten Commandments. That was the Mosaic Law. If you obey, you can be my people and I'll be your God. You'll be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, if you obey. But they didn't obey. And the end result is that man is guilty before a holy God for failing to obey what God said to do. But then that is to be compared and is compared here in this verse, verse 31 and 32, with a new covenant. And this new covenant is a, is a covenant that is going to be built upon the blood of Jesus Christ, as the New Testament makes clear. It remedies what the old covenant could not do because of man's failure. It granted... A relationship with God, not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of Jesus Christ's shed blood on Calvary. Mount Sinai creates guilt. Mount Calvary relieves guilt. Mount Sinai proves to me how miserable I am. Mount Calvary washes it all away and grants me a relationship with my Creator by grace Freely because of what he did for me. And so he compares. Jeremiah compares these. He says the old covenant was broken. So God will enter a new covenant. And the new covenant that he will enter into. He called the new covenant. Here's a second observation. <clears throat> second observation is the old covenant was based on outward conformity. The new covenant was based upon inward transformation. Look at that at verse 33. Verse 33 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I like that phrase. That's an interesting phrase. I'm thinking a little bit about that. After those days, saith the Lord. You see, the old covenant leaves me thinking about my guilt, my despair. My failure. I I try harder and I still fail. Romans chapter 7 talks about the person who tries and tries and tries. I'm going to start again. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to to start over again. I'm I'm going to do it right this time. Only to fail again and fail again and fail again and fail again. The problem 
was not the law. Romans 7 asked, is, is the problem the laws? Is there something wrong with the Ten Commandments? That the Ten Commandments can't get me into a relationship with God? Is the problem the law? No, 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 the problem's not the law. The problem is my failure to keep the law. The law always ends in guilt and failure and despair. Ah, but after those days of despair, you remember when you were in despair? Do you remember when God began to convince you that you were on your way to hell? Do you remember the conviction? Do you remember the miserable feeling in your heart? Do you remember feeling, I have no hope? I have no hope. We read that in Ezekiel's description of this new covenant. They said that the people said our bones are dry. We have no hope. That's what the Mosaic covenant leaves you with. But after these days, after this time of conviction of the Spirit of God, after this time of guiltiness and despair, after after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. This is a heart transformation. This is the difference between a list of rules. You've got to check the list. Compared to an inward change of the heart to where I want to do what the law was telling me I had to do. The new covenant is based upon a transforming of the heart. Of, of not I have to, but I want to. Not what I'm made to do, a list of rules I have to keep in order to be a Christian. But rather, a miracle working power where life comes out of death. Dead bones become a living person. Life out of death. And my heart is transformed. The same law, thou shalt not lie. But now it's written on my heart. It's not on a table of stone requiring outward conformity in order to attain something. Now my heart is transformed. And within my heart, I want to tell the truth. And the moment I tell something that's not true, I feel the stab of the Spirit of God and I realize I just messed up. A transformation of the heart as God takes His same holy principles. Romans chapter 7 describes it to a woman who was married to an, uh, an old man. And, 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 and as long as the old guy was kicking, she was stuck in marriage to him. But when the old man died, she was free to go marry a new man. And Romans 7 likens that to getting saved. As soon as the old law died and I was guilty before God, I was set free from the law and I can marry a new law. The law of Jesus Christ, Romans 7 talks about. And now I'm married to a new man and this new man treats me so much better than the old man treated me. This new man is a pleasure to live with where the old man was, was a horrendous married partner. This new man, it's the same law, it's the same holiness, it's the same God. But now he has transformed my inner heart and now I want to live a holy life. And then when I do things that are not in accordance with his character, I feel dirty. And I got to get my heart cleansed. The old country preacher said it this way, an unsaved person is like a hog that jumps in the mud and loves it. But a Christian is like a 
a, a sheep that will accidentally slip into the mud and absolutely hate it. There's a transformation of the heart. God turned me from a pig to a lamb. And I have a transformed person. And then let me make a third observation. The entire Jewish people will be saved. Verse number 33 ended by saying that because of this transformation of the heart, God will be their God and they will be his people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. That's an interesting statement. There'll be no more soul winning. No one will have to tell somebody, you need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. No one will have to ever do that. Why? For they shall all know me. God is going to save every Jewish person on the earth. Every Jewish person will be inwardly transformed by the power of God, granting to them the benefits of the new covenant of Jesus Christ's blood shed for them. This is something that God is promising. He's promising it to the house of Israel. Ezekiel's portion we read a few moments ago. We skipped the in-between portion. Talked about two sticks becoming one. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom becoming one nation. We read at the end of that Ezekiel passage, they would be no more two nations, but one nation. The northern kingdom that went into Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom that went into Babylonian captivity. God said there will be a day where the whole house of Israel will be one nation, one house. And I will save every last Israeli person on the face of the earth. And no one will need to tell an Israeli person about the Messiah. For every one of them will be saved. No one will have to say Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Did you catch that? The issue regarding my relationship with God is a sin issue. Always has been, always will be. The issue of being brought into a relationship with God is an issue over my sin and rebellion. And God's new covenant is that God will grant to the Jewish people, every single one of them, the forgiveness of sins. And he'll remember their sin no more. It's going to be a personal relationship. Salvation is a personal relationship, right? It's about knowing Jesus Christ personally. It's not repeating some magical words. It's not, it's not some, uh, some ritual that I go through. It's not a baptism or a ritual. Or it, it is a personal relationship whereby I become God's and God becomes mine. And we are best friends. And we talk. And we enjoy each other. I know him. I know him personally. That's the essence of salvation. And it's only possible when my sins are forgiven 
to be remembered no more. Now, how long is this new covenant going to last? He talks about this new covenant and, and, and he's going to he's going to take the house of Israel, the Jewish people. He's going to save every last Israeli person and forgive them their sin and remember their sin no more. How long is this going to last? That's the fourth observation I make. Look at verse thirty five. Verse 35 says, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars, and night by light, uh, light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now, verse 35 simply says, God set up our world system to operate with some different processes. The sun shines, the moon glows. And the waves every day rush up on the sandy shore. But now notice verse number 36. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. How long will this new covenant with Israel last? As long as the sun shines. As long as the moon glows, as long as the waves crash on the sandy shore, God has made a covenant with the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, that involves a piece of real estate over in the Middle East, and it involves a relative of King David sitting on the throne, ruling the entire world. And all of those covenant promises that God has made with this group of people require the conversion of Israel for every Jewish person to be born again, for every Jewish person to be saved. And it will not end. The promises are valid and good as long as the sun shines, the moon glows. And the waves crash upon the shore. But notice verse number 37. Thus saith the Lord, if the heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. God says, I tell you what, as soon as you as human beings can fully search out the entire universe. And have full knowledge of all the starry skies. As soon as you human beings can attain to full understanding and search out all the heavens. Until you can go down beneath your feet and have full knowledge of everything to the core of the earth. Until you are able to attain such lofty knowledge of the heavens and the earth, my promises stand. All Israel shall be saved. That's pretty, pretty solid promises, isn't it? Pretty solid promises. And so, God's new covenant is a promise to save every individual Jewish person, resulting in a... Jewish nation of born-again believers. If you know anything about the Jewish people today, you know we're a long ways away from that. 
And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that that's only going to happen when Jesus' feet land on the Mount of Olives and he shows up the second time on earth. And all Israel will see him and realize their ancestors put to death their own Messiah. And all Israel shall be saved. You know what that means? That means there's a future for the people of Israel. There's a future for the nation of Israel. There's a future for the Jewish people. And that future hinges upon the Mosaic law bringing them to the point of guiltiness. And then the promises of the new covenant bringing them to the point of salvation. Well, tonight... And, and we had announced that we're going to have, uh, we're going to officially start our Sunday evening services next Sunday night. But due to um, a lack of a pre-recorded missionary conversation to play at six o'clock this evening, in place of our evening service, uh, I'm going to be here in the auditorium, and I'm going to turn the next page on this kingdom of God that we're praying. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This kingdom of God on earth that we are looking forward to happening in the future. I'm going to turn the page on that this evening to the New Testament. And we're going to look at how Jesus Christ stepped into the scene of what we have looked at for the last two weeks of the expectation of the Jewish people for a Messiah that would establish a political kingdom. How Jesus stepped in to the scene on the basis of the new covenant. And what Jesus Christ said that has impacted every one of us. Whether we be Jew or Gentile. It's the new covenant that he talked about in the upper room. When he held that, that cup of the fruit of the vine and said, This is the new covenant in my blood for you. And that new covenant, salvation, began to be spread throughout the Gentile world through missions work and world evangelism.